0: This is an ABC podcast. I urge Japanese civilians to leave industrial cities immediately and save themselves from destruction.
1: Having found the atomic bomb, we have used it.
2: US President Harry Truman addressing the nation 75 years ago after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The events that led to the Japanese surrender and the end of World War II in the Pacific. All this week, Radio National is marking this anniversary, and we begin here on Rear Vision with me, Annabelle Quince, by providing an overview of how the war changed Australia in three key areas, immigration, foreign policy and the economy. So this is Australia, and is that the Australian flag?
1: Yes. The Union Jack in the corner is a reminder that the British originally colonised Australia.
2: The Australian colonies federated into the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901, yet remained tied to Britain in many ways. Most of Australia's trade went via Britain, foreign policy was determined by Britain, and almost 98% of the population came from Britain. Gwenta Tavan is adjunct associate professor at La Trobe University and the author of The Long, Slow Death of White Australia.
3: In 1901, with Federation, one of the first pieces of legislation that's introduced is the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, euphemistically referred to as the White Australia Policy And when white Australians imagine themselves as a national community, as a political community and a society, it was certainly imagined in white British Australian terms. And many political leaders like to boast that Australia was 98% British, which was pretty well accurate into the 1940s. At Federation,
2: Australia's economy was based on exports, primarily wool and wheat. Professor Stuart McIntyre from the University of Melbourne is the author of Australia's Boldest Experiment, War and Reconstruction in the 1940s.
1: The Australian economy had traditionally relied on importing foreign capital and technology, and indeed labour through migration programs and exporting primary commodities. (laughs) Not unlike now. That was regarded as the most efficient use of our resources. We specialised in what we were best at. But it did mean that Australia's economic capacity was compromised. And that was simply the way things were done.
2: Australia's ability to determine its own foreign policy was also compromised. Despite the independence touted after World War I, Australia's foreign policy until the 1940s was directed through Britain. David Lowe holds a chair in contemporary history at Deakin University.
0: And I think in the eyes of many Australians, there's a sort of an unfortunate conflation between that pivotal moment in World War I as the sort of birth of the nation and the manifestation of a form of nationalism, and too many people probably equate that with a sense of an independent foreign policy. It's not really the case. Our dependence on Britain to provide all the kind of leads in our orientation in world affairs certainly continues on beyond World War One, And most of the gains that we hope to make in international circles, the kind of diplomatic posturing at the versailles peace treaty at the end of world war 1 was sort of as part of the british empire so that's very much the case in broad terms during the interwar years and australia only starts to appoint beyond london of course where it's had a long standing high commissioner to other overseas posts in 1940 just after the outbreak of world war 2 in
2: 1908 australia did host the american naval fleet and made some tentative approaches to the US about an alliance.
0: The visit of the Great White Fleet is certainly really significant because the invitation was extended by Prime Minister Alfred Deakin in a way that annoyed the British. It was an act that went outside the boundaries of what they wanted and it spoke a kind of a sense of awareness of Australian vulnerability in the South Pacific you couldn't completely rely on the British Navy. Even though there was heavy dependence and heavy hopes in the British Navy, there was this growing awareness that that might not be sufficient. And relations with the US were kind of tentative and hopeful for a while. But we need to remember that from the American point of view, the interwar years is characterised by what they call isolationism, a reluctance to be drawn into world affairs, if at all possible. So even though in the mid-1930s there are again, tentative feelers about some kind of pact put out by Australian Prime Minister Joseph Lyons, these don't get anywhere with the Americans.
2: Did this mean that Australia relied for its defence on Britain and their strategy of building up a military base in Singapore?
0: Yes. Reliance on the so-called Singapore strategy was really high. You recall that from the late 1920s, there was this British commitment to build up a fortress at Singapore, and this was to be the whole kind of foundation of defending Southeast Asia if and when an attack emerged that might threaten the likes of Australia. By the time we get to the mid-1930s, and certainly by the late 1930s, the Australians are getting pretty nervous about this. They have grave reservations about just how effectively the British have built up Singapore, And the kind of resources that they might devote to it, especially in the event of a war breaking out elsewhere in the world on several fronts, like, you know, fighting a war with Germany and Italy. And then the prospect of Japan joining in scared the Australians no end because they realised how quickly British forces would be stretched and the impact that that might have on them getting anywhere near enough forces down towards Singapore. But they didn't really have much of an alternative. They did make those kind of tentative opportunings to the, the US that I mentioned that went nowhere. And they did try to, in small but um, significant ways, try to embark on a bit of rearmament and a bit of preparedness. But the scale, of course, was very low in the mid to late 30s. So World War Two breaks out at a time when the Australians are really desperately hammering at the British to provide stronger guarantees of Singapore, but not really having much of an alternative to fall back on.
1: Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her and that as a result, Australia is also at war. In 1939, when war broke out in Europe, there was an unemployment rate in Australia of 10%. The unemployment rate had been much higher in the early 30s, but there was a generation of wage earners who'd never had stable employment. The armed forces had been run down after the war and run down even further as economy measures during the Depression. The Australian economy had developed a sort of a slightly expanded range of manufacturers with protection, But it is quite striking that in 1939, Australia was incapable of even making a car, an automobile. We imported the chassis and the engine from overseas and we did the carriage works. And yet by 1943, we were capable of building the most advanced four-engine bomber aircraft.
2: The first two years of Australia's war effort was led by Robert Menzies' United Australia Party but their hold on power was tenuous.
1: Well, he had a very thin majority and he had a number of critics, particularly in New South Wales, and the criticism often takes the form of saying there is an urgent need for the government to plan for post-war reconstruction. So post-war reconstruction is a sort of a nebulous phrase, which means we need to make sure these things never begin again. And the leader of the opposition, who's John Curtin, finds that very convenient because his Labor Party is hopelessly split on whether Australia should be in the war or not. So he's able to say, well, until the government does something about post war Reconstruction, we can't give support for the war effort.
2: Menzies resigns as Prime Minister in August 1941, and in October, John Curtin, the Labor Party leader, is sworn in, just as the war in the Pacific takes off.
1: December 7, 1941... A date which will live in infamy. United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
2: Through 1942, the Curtin government introduced a range of economic measures that gave them control over almost all aspects of people's lives, including taxation, wages and profits, productivity, trade and consumption.
1: The command economy I'm talking about was one that was quite draconian. People could be told, no, you have to leave that job, you might be working as a shop assistant, and we'll expect you to enter a munitions factory at nine o'clock, please, the next morning. This involved controls of people's lives, rent control, wage control, profits control. This was a level of, and that was a command economy. About half of the Australian GDP was devoted to war activity. On February 15th, 1942, Singapore falls to the Japanese.
2: So what happens to Australia and its defence after the fall of Singapore?
0: Well, the kind of shorthand way of putting it is that Britain hands Australia over to the United States for safekeeping. Almost one million Americans pass through Australia and use Australia as a gigantic base from which to First of all, fight a holding campaign to at least hold the line, stop the Japanese spread any further and from the Australian base, mount a campaign to recapture all the islands of Southeast Asia and then launch an assault on the Japanese islands. So it's not as though the British were imagining that Australia would now leave its orbit, but it was sort of handing over by agreement for safekeeping during the the duration of the war. Australia's defence predicament to the United States. And from the American point of view too, it wasn't as though their presence in Australia marked the start of a glorious new era of alliance. Again, they saw it in the same terms. It was a necessary thing for a short time. Who knew what would happen once war had ended?
2: But the relationship between Australia and America wasn't easy.
0: I think Australians quite rightly look back very favourably on the leadership shown by Prime Minister John Curtin for the bulk of the Second World War before he tragically died. But there are all sorts of tensions he had with Douglas MacArthur, the American general who oversaw American troops in Australia and the the pushback campaign against Japan. Those tensions were very real and the Americans MacArthur, we know, was, was very publicity conscious and conscious of his reputation. So he would Annoy the Australians at times, trying to take credit for certain things in campaigns such as Papua New Guinea and, and otherwise. But nevertheless, it was a sort of an accommodation from both sides that they realised was absolutely essential. What's less certain, as I was just saying, was what would become of the relationship once the war ended. And for a while, there was some quite substantial friction. The Americans seemed interested in a few bases, for example, There's a name that's very familiar to many Australians today of Manus, Manus Island, great deep sea kind of naval base that the Americans wondered whether that might be part of their post-war series of strategic naval bases around the world. And the Australian External Affairs Minister, Dr. Evatt, sort of campaigned in a rather tough bargaining manner for other privileges that the Australians might have in return for possibly granting them access to the Manus base And that all fell through. The relationship became quite uh, fraught. The Americans decided they didn't need it after all. So the four or five years after the end of World War II were not marked by terribly good relations between the Australians and the Americans. It was only with the, the deepening of the Cold War, in particular the breakout of war in Korea, that made the Americans think much harder about firming up formal alliances in parts of Asia and the Pacific. And at that point, and this is the lead up to the ANZUS Treaty, of course, at that point, the relationship gathers new steam.
2: This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. And we're looking at the impact World War II had on Australia. One of the key debates throughout the war was how Australia would transition from a war economy and what post-war Australia would look like.
1: By this time, there was a section of a government department that was in charge of post-war reconstruction planning. But from the moment that the Japanese struck south, Curtin wanted nothing to do with post-war reconstruction. He insisted that it was a distraction from the war effort. This is a war economy. Every possible resource is diverted from the civilian sector to the war effort. And in a sense... Post-war Reconstruction lives on because how can you ask people to make these sacrifices? Well, you can only ask people to make these sacrifices if you say, well, you'll get your reward. After the war, things will be different. But in practice, Curtin delays and delays. He delays, in fact, till the end of '42, when he's forced to give way because he needs to persuade his party to allow him to introduce conscription. He then creates a department of post-war Reconstruction but gives responsibility to it to his closest colleague and friend, Ben Shifley. And Shifley's meant to hold it on a very short leash, securing economic growth and fully employment and introducing a limited range of social welfare measures.
0: I don't believe in the completely neutral person, whether he's a public servant or not. I believe all people have views.
1: Ben Shifley chose as the head of the department... A man called Nugget Coombs. Coombs was an economist who's imbued with the new Keynesian ideas of economic management. He's a remarkably persuasive man. One of the people who works for him subsequently, a departmental head, said at his best, Coombs could charm birds from the trees. Coombs is enthused with the prospect of post-war reconstruction and Coombs caught Chifley's imagination. So post-war reconstruction planning in Australia expands to take in a host of projects, from fixing up the badly run-down countryside to making good the shortage of housing to planning and immigration and a reconstruction public works program, the Snowy Mountains, and much else. And so post-war reconstruction, in a sense, takes flight again. There is a problem with it taking flight because... The government was able to undertake this planning and initial projects using its special wartime powers. Under the Defence Act, it had the power to do these things. But the Defence Act was going to expire at some point and the state premiers that had promised to cooperate failed to cooperate. They said they would transfer these powers, but they didn't. In
2: 1944, the government held a referendum asking the Australian people to change the constitution to give the federal government power over 14 areas of the economy. The referendum failed and the federal government's reconstruction plans faced a series of limitations.
1: Well, I'll give you some examples. They had a scheme of soldier settlement that was going to ensure that soldier settlers were put onto blocks of land that were viable and were given the training and support they needed to make a go of the farming. But under the compromise, the states controlled the purchase of land. So the Commonwealth's capacity to impose that test was greatly weakened. In housing, the idea was that there would be 50,000 houses built a year, that half of them would be public housing and half would be private, but the states kick up a fuss and they reduce the amount of public housing And furthermore, the idea was that public housing would be available at controlled rents. The states are very unhappy about that and put the rents up. So if you look at one program after another, the original intention couldn't be followed.
2: What do you think Australia would have looked like if that referendum had passed? Do you think it would have been very different to how it is today?
1: It would have been a more comprehensive reconstruction. We can make comparisons. The United Kingdom, for instance, they nationalised more industries than we did, coal mining, transport, iron and steel. I mean the other great achievement I think of the United Kingdom was the National Health Service, which essentially did what Australia wanted to do but was unable to get the power to do it. So it would have been, if you like, more comprehensive and thoroughgoing.
2: Do you think the post-war reconstruction was a success?
1: I think any evaluation of the post-war reconstruction program would say it was a success. That is, the form of economic management by government using Keynesian techniques of demand control meant that there was uninterrupted economic growth for 25 years. There were high rates of growth. There were rising living standards peoples had access to a much wider range of welfare benefits, there was a substantial expansion of manufacturing capacity. For all of the limitations of post-war reconstruction, it was a sort of a nation-building period that sustained Australian prosperity for another quarter century.
2: One of the cornerstones of that prosperity was the policy of increased migration. There are just seven million Australians. The Labor Prime Minister, Ben Shifley, believes this number must be trebled. As leader, he immediately creates an entirely new ministry, the Department of Immigration. In
3: 1943, Prime Minister John Curtin makes an announcement that they will be planning to expand immigration after the war, and that's exactly what happens. And I think that the creation of the Department of Immigration is one of the most interesting and yet quite neglected stories of the 20th century and the kinds of thinking and planning and expertise that was involved with this. It starts with discussing the issue of how are we going to build population when hostilities end and it becomes an issue that is is looked at by increasing numbers of people and discussed quite publicly. I think this is very important. It's not a secret that government officials are looking at the issue of how to build population numbers after the world. There's a lot of interesting public debate going on and really what emerges is quite extraordinary because the department that's created isn't just interested in finding people and bringing them to Australia, it's already thinking about the whole of migrant experience. So from selection to transportation to entry, settlement and integration, including citizenship,
2: And did those very ideas about Australia remaining a sort of British outpost, in a sense, was that maintained via the Immigration Department when they went and looked for migrants? Did they
3: really only go to Britain? It was very clear very early on, in fact, by the late 1930s, that Australia was never going to be able to get the sorts of numbers of British settlers that it would have preferred. By the early 1940s, public officials are openly admitting that there's going to have to be a greater reliance on groups outside of Britain. And it's also very clear to government officials that the most likely people that will be available will be from southern Europe. And this led ultimately to a decision in 1947 to start accepting displaced persons from Europe and the Baltic states.
2: And in the post-war years, just how large was the increase in migration?
3: It was a pretty dramatic increase. The government had committed to a 1% annual increase by migration in 1945. It said, uh, based on a scientific calculation, we can probably accommodate about 70,000 people per annum. In fact, uh, you had a very slow start because of uh, shipping shortages. Uh, after World War II, uh, but by 1949 uh, net migration had already hit um, almost 150,000. So it was quite, a, after a slow start, it was quite a dramatic increase it peaked at around 185,000 in 1969, 1970. So you can see it was a very, very dramatic increase in population. There was a report issued by the Secretary of the Department of Immigration in 1968, and he talked about how significant that immigration intake had been to Australia's population growth, not just to population growth, also to labour force participation. Some incredible figures there about the role that immigration played in increasing the Australian workforce, both for men and women.
2: The start of the Korean War in 1950 and the intensification of the Cold War led to a formal alliance between Australia and the United States, the ANZUS Treaty, which was signed in September 1951.
0: The crucial clause in ANZUS is not terribly strong, and we need to sometimes remind ourselves about this, whereas the NATO formula, you know, NATO is the great Cold War alliance covering Europe, And the NATO formula was, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. The ANZUS formula is much softer. It's an act of aggression will prompt a response in accordance with our constitutional processes. Now, that can mean a lot of things. So there's certainly a commitment to meet and respond, but the nature of that response remained pretty woolly. What we see over the next, really, 20 years from the Australian point of view after ANZUS's conclusions is an awful lot of diplomacy trying to just sort out the circumstances under which they thought the Americans might actually come to our rescue. There's sometimes a tendency for people to equate ANZUS to some kind of insurance policy for Australia. And, you know, my response to that would be, well, geez, if it is, it's not the kind of insurance policy I'd I'd like to see drawn up because there was so much rubberiness around it.
3: I started off this interview by talking about how proud Australians were of their British origins and the the boast about being 98% British. It is very significant how quickly the kinds of racial and cultural hierarchies that had dictated attitudes to immigration and had dictated policy towards immigration was dismantled once the decision was taken to accept displaced persons from Europe, those racial and cultural hierarchies were dismantled fairly quickly, except, of course, the non-European migration. So that by the early 1950s, there were schemes in place, programs and negotiations with countries that had before had been resisted, like countries from Southern Europe, Italy and Greece. Now, that happens. And even though there are grumblings, you know, within sections of society, it's not a political deal-breaker. It doesn't cost governments elections in doing that. It shows that Australians are accepting these as necessary changes. There is certainly evidence of racism and discrimination against immigrants after 1945. But generally speaking... And relatively speaking, it's clear that there is this level of acceptance and there is a possibility for migrants to have social and economic mobility. By the 1970s, Australia looks and feels and sounds very different to the Australia pre 1945.
2: When you look at the kind of disruption that we're, the economy is going through today, which clearly is not exactly the same as what happened during the war, but I'm wondering, are there lessons to be learned about how economies can be reconstructed from that post-war construction period?
1: Yes, it's a very good question. There is a tendency to sort of hark back to a previous episode and hold it up as a model of what we could do. I'm a bit wary about that. I think that we need to understand the historical circumstances. There was overfull employment during and after the Second World War. We now have a, an unemployment problem that is highly significant. But if there is a lesson, it's a lesson about mobilising popular support, a consensus, the way people buy into the idea that things not only could be better but must be better. Wars are occasions, I suppose in a sense epidemics also are, where normal arrangements are disrupted and the disruption makes it possible for radical change to occur. But another lesson that I'd cite is that that's finite. That won't last. You need to take advantage of the opportunity while the opportunity is available to you.
2: Professor Stuart McIntyre, author of Australia's Boldest Experiment, War and Reconstruction in the 1940s. Also on the program, Professor Gwenda Tavan, author of The Long Slow Death of White Australia, and David Lowe, Chair of Contemporary History at Deakin University. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National.